0: Welcome to the next episode of the Think Wildlife podcast. In this episode, we return after a short break with a very special guest. Frances Shepard is the co founder and executive director of Rewilding Europe. It is the leading conservation organization across mainland Europe, which is working on the rewilding of various landscapes including the reintroduction of mega herbivores and other keystone species such as wolves, bears and eurasian lynx. Tune in to listen more. Welcome Francis, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast to talk about rewilding Europe. Yes, nice to meet you. Thanks for inviting me for this podcast. So what inspired you to establish rewilding Europe? Well, that's a bit of a long long
1: story, but I've been working in conservation my whole life and uh, always working to uh, reduce damage and to uh, yeah reduce threats to nature, which is uh, very uh, intense and you know we all know the reality. You, you don't win much. And then I discovered in many places where I went during my career that there's an incredible power in nature. So apart from just trying to stop losing nature, I felt like why not uh, work with nature to restore it? And so the whole idea about using the the power and resilience, of nature to bounce back if we allow it to became like the drive of uh, what I wanted to do next and uh, and that was you know one Rewild Europe was a fantastic opportunity to do that um, because in Europe as you know i may know um, we lost a lot of nature and everything is and everyone is focusing on trying to protect it and uh, you know don't continue to losing nature but at the same time uh, we also have an opportunity for bringing nature back to Europe and this has to do with a number of uh, developments that we see already happening for decades and one of them is rural depopulation so young people leaving the countryside old generations stay behind Uh, land is being abandoned often marginal land that you know in the old days you could still earn a living but in modern times you can't same time we saw wildlife come back you know lots of the doing quite well Um, there there's also, uh, you know, as people live more in urban areas, there is an interest in going out. And so nature-based tourism is on the rise, you know, big time. So we saw these things being connect- connected. And we felt this is a historic opportunity, actually, to start with something that will boost nature to come back across our continent. So that was that. mean, that a few bit of an incubation, uh, the start of rewilding Europe.
0: My second question for you is that, what are the rewilding principles and how are you implementing them at Rewilding Europe?
1: Yeah, so we set up a number of principles that we felt should guide us. And just be aware there's no silver, silver bullet or blueprint for rewilding that you can just apply in any continent or any country. So we went on a bit of a discovery path, if you like. You know, How would rewilding work in a European context? You know, it's not about protecting wilderness and and create or creating wilderness in europe of course you know as many people know the landscape is very much cultivated it's human dominated although there's less pressure on land as i explained and wildlife is coming back so um you know the principles are it starts actually with a definition of rewilding or or you know what is rewilding and as we say it it's um there's different ways but you know a more popular version is allowing nature to restore itself or unleashing the power of nature, or, uh, you know, restoring uh, functional ecosystems. So it's make, making nature work again, uh, to the, both nature, of course, and biodiversity and, and so on, but also people. Uh, so so the principles are very much, uh, it's, it's quite holistic, it is uh, using nature's power to build back and bring back uh, nature to Europe it's um very much uh, connected with communities, so it's uh, important that people benefit so the people's dimension to rewilding is very important um it includes uh, making sure that you know you include the the local the local history of a place you cannot just uh, forget about that of course you build on everything that is there including the local culture and and the history of the place and so we have set up this uh, set of rewilding principles that uh, we are applying and of course depending on the local context whether it's sort of the ecological context or the geographical place or the cultural or socio-economic context that of course determines uh, to a large extent how these principles express themselves in this particular landscape and that's what we're doing in 10 big landscapes or places now across europe
0: what role does keystone species have in ecological restoration yeah
1: yeah so if you start Looking at a landscape and you look at, okay, what is the rewilding potential here or need, if you like? Then, of course, you look at what are the key drivers of these ecosystems? Is that flooding, like in river systems? Is it erosion? Is it... natural grazing the road of carnivores you so you look at how complete is this system what uh, how how much is the ecological functioning developed and then of course you see in many places that we're actually dealing with degraded systems where a lot of things are missing and you know of course there's a key role for uh, for wildlife species that that can influence landscapes whether it's through grazing whether it's through other other ways and so keystone species are those species that are more important than others because they influence landscapes and, and those are the species that we would like to bring back because they will help us to rewild, right? So let's talk about uh, large herbivores. So Europe used to have large herbivores before people came, you know, it was full what we know from Africa and places in India and other places in the world, full of uh, large herbivores, wild horses, aurochs, Uh, European bison you know lots of deer you name it Kulan Przewalski horses that you know depends on how far you go back in time but we have a lot of we had a lot of large herbivores that were working like landscape architects because they graze and they browse and they push trees they can suppress vegetation and and create a very dynamic and natural landscape and uh, when people came a lot of those animals you know disappeared, some species even got extinct like uh, the auroch got extinct and also the European wild horse um, or they became very low in densities so th- their impact on the landscape basically disappeared and the man- a lot of that was replaced by domestic animals so Europe used to have, when people came and started livestock grazing I always say zillions of sheep and goat and horses and cows and what have you donkeys that that grazed the landscape. So, a lot of the landscapes, actually in Europe, were heavily overgrazed. If you look at old pictures from the Alps and the Pyrenees and the Apennines and other places, very bare mountains without any trees. Um, but when this rural depopulation happened, the livestock grazing also uh, decreased heavily, and, and so now you see that those places are uh, are, are these landscapes that I just mentioned. There's a lot of uh, natural regeneration happening of forests, so forest is coming back big time in Europe. So you could say that the first time ever in Europe, we we are missing large herbiv- herbivores now, and so what we are doing with Rewilding Europe is bring those large herbivores back to play that role again in these ecosystems. Because you know it's fantastic to have closed canopy forests, but the natural landscape and the most you know so diverse landscapes uh, can only exist when megafauna and and, and herbivores in particular. Are also part of it, so uh, that's just an example of the role of a keystone
0: species. So, how does rewilding help tackle the climate crisis?
1: Well, there is two ways re- how rewilding can contribute, or actually, a number of ways. But let me focus on two um, uh, can t- can help sort of yeah tackle. It's maybe a big word, or maybe we could say. Help to mitigate and also, uh, you know, the impact of climate change, which is already happening, as we all know, or uh, adapt. One of them is, you know, large-scale restoration of ecosystems, whether it's grasslands or peatlands or forests. Of course, captures a lot of carbon. So a lot of people still think that the only way is a technical way of 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 capturing carbon. You know, nature, of course, has proven for m- millions of years that. The, that is the best technology we have. So if we restore peatlands, if we restore wetlands, if we protect and restore forests and all the, our ecosystems that capture carbon, uh, that, of course, is a, is really important. So um, that is a big contribution to, um, to reducing uh, carbon in the atmosphere. That's one. The other one is on the adaptation side. So, yes, there will be already an impact if we head towards one and a half degrees temperature rise or, uh, on average, which is, of course, more in certain places, like in the Northern Hemisphere and the Arctic and Antarctic. And, and but if we if had it in there, there will be impact already. So how can rewilding help to reduce uh, floods, droughts, diseases, starvation of forest, you name it? And so we think that more resilient ecosystems, and that is exactly what rewilding is trying to achieve, that are not managed by people, but that run on their own, when nature is the driving force behind, are much more resilient uh, than uh, non-natural systems. So, if there is a disease outbreak um, in a forest, which is a plantation, you know that infestation can just go through the forest uh, entirely. But if you have a diverse forest uh, with different species of trees, different ages, that will never have such a big impact. So, that's just one example. The other one is about you know water and wetlands. We know there will be shortage of water and, and, and droughts in many, many places, including Europe, like our rivers. And of course, um, uh, creating areas, wetland areas, restoring wetland areas will help us to uh, to save water and uh, you know for any of our purposes. Um, and also if we give space to rivers and there is flooding, you know we have lots of rainfall intense rainfall nowadays. As a result of climate change, uh, you know, rivers that have a lot of space, you know, can absorb and can deal with these with, with these type of high floods. So these are just a few examples that um, we're rewilding or, you know, leading to more naturally functioning and resilient ecosystems can help us, you know, to mitigate and adapt to the changing climate.
0: So. This year, a new nature restoration law was being discussed in the EU Parliament. Could you mm-hmm. elaborate on this policy and its significance?
1: Yeah, so as everyone knows, Europe launched, the European Commission launched the European Green Deal uh, nearly three years ago. And there was a, a climate component and a nature component, to put it simple. The climate component, uh, European climate law was accepted and it, it, it brings legally binding targets to EU member states to contribute and make sure that we don't uh, surpass the 1.5 degrees. So each country has to come with a plan, which is legally binding. So meaning that, you know, they really have to deliver on this. Um, for nature, let's say the second important component of the uh, Green Deal, there's another one, which is the farm to fork strategy, which is uh, on the on the agriculture. Uh, but the nature component um, is basically the biodiversity strategy for 2020. Uh, 20- 21 to 2030 uh, is there and it's a very good piece of work it was uh, presented by the European Commission but it didn't have any legal uh, dimension to it so the European Commission rightfully said you know you know looking at our previous biodiversity strategy we actually didn't deliver on the targets actually most of it was not achieved by the member states if we want nature to restore nature at scale in Europe um apart from protecting it through what we already have the habitats and birds directive mainly if you want to restore degraded lands in Europe we also need to have legally binding targets and that is what the eu nature restoration law is about so it's a it's a it's a legal backing of the biodiversity strategy and the targets that are being set within the european green deal and um there's a big discussion about it because you know i think most of us see that we need a change here, whether it's the use of pesticide or the intensification of agriculture, the way we produce our food. Um, We need to restore big time in Europe. And this is where rewilding comes in, because rewilding is very cost effective because it's not people that are restoring everything. We actually create the conditions, as I said in the beginning, for nature to restore itself. So it's very cost effective because even if you have to do initial interventions like creating more space for rivers you know put peatlands on the water again um or bring species back or some of the other things i mentioned you know that will cost some money but it is uh, these are one-off in- interventions uh because what you want next is that nature then starts restoring itself with these new conditions and actually a lot of things that now cost money you can stop doing um, you know, the intense management of systems. If you want systems to become more natural, you should also uh, stop, you know, managing them very actively. So uh, we believe that rewilding is a very cost-effective and efficient way of restoring nature at scale. And this EU nature restoration law will be an important tool uh, to support this, uh, this, this type of work. And so we are very eager, of course, uh, to uh, To make sure that this EU restoration law will be uh, voted positively and accepted in European Parliament ultimately, which will happen in July. So, um, yeah, in July, of summer 2023.
0: So, what are some obstacles facing the passing of the law and the implementation of similar laws?
1: Well, the obstacle, uh, f- and this is where the political discussion and debates are about, is about: are we going to continue on in the traditional way with our food production, in particular, using pesticides, just intensifying? You know, the small farmers are losing out; the big farms get the big money, and leading to all these problems of uh, impact on climate, impact on biodiversity, and so on. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, economic interest in the big agricultural sector, of course, of keeping things as as they are. But we need change, and so the biggest um, lobby against this a new e-restoration law comes from the food and agri sector, uh, which is a shame because um, uh, I think everyone can see that this is not a sustainable way of producing our food. We need systems change, and uh, this EU restoration law, next to the other uh, tools that the Commission has put together, will be able will will enable us to uh, to make that change so there is strong opposition from uh, from those sectors um and that's what the the discussion of the fight if you like is about now it's about voters it's about power it's about money it's about capital it's about big uh, companies and the industry that um wants to wants to keep the status quo which uh, you know i believe is not the way to go
0: so, what are some other political and social challenges hindering the rewilding movement in Europe?
1: So, some of the other challenges that we that we come across uh, in in sort of rewilding Europe and making rewilding mainstream in Europe is that maybe first it's more the the, the um the, the psychology. I think because Europe is so cultivated, everyone believes that if we don't manage nature, it will go wrong. So, if we don't cut and mow and prune and shoot and burn and whatever people do in nature, you know, if we don't control it, it will got, got, go out of hand. And I think, you know, we need a paradigm shift in thinking. We need to trust nature more. So, there is this call it psychological uh, change that we need in, in the way we look at nature in Europe. And all the rewilding examples that are now being uh, pursued and people are working on, and it's really mushrooming all across Europe, they are meant to demonstrate. And show people look you know this is not dangerous or it doesn't um it doesn't impact the, you know the food production or whatever this is actually ensuring that we have clean air clean water that we uh that you know it supports human well-being it gives uh, economic opportunity it gives these climate uh benefits so there's many things that 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 people are not aware of yet that i hope we uh, you know we can demonstrate so the, the the change in thinking is a big one because that, that's where it really starts. Other challenges are more practical, like current policy environment is not yet supportive, sufficiently supportive for rewilding. We come across lots of barriers that, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you have to do this, you have to do that, which is based on this old thinking that we need to control nature. So, um, so those are... Um, uh i would say two two main challenges that we come across and that we are working on and there's a few more of course but that's more maybe local where uh yeah there could be all sorts of challenges locally that we have to address uh, but overall we see a lot of progress happening and uh results and 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 also impact starting to uh, to show up uh in our um, rewilding initiatives now ten lands- landscapes across europe and our latest annual review uh that was just published in june uh, gives lots of stories where you...
0: various top predators are returning to europe's landscapes so what has been the broad ecological impact of re- reviving wolf bear and lynx populations across europe
1: yeah so we see a, a comeback of large carnivores already for uh, for decades i have to say so we talk about brown bear gray wolf european, european lynx or sorry eurasian lynx Iberian lynx, but also uh, Wolverine, and even some of the medium-sized uh, carnivores like uh, Golden Jackal. Um, and these are coming back because of better protection, mostly. You're not allowed to shoot these animals and uh, or poach them or whatever. So better protection has made a big difference. So they're spreading a- uh, across Europe again. And this is very unique because I don't know any other continent that has this increase in numbers but also range expansion uh, like we have in europe of the of nearly all or basically all the, the large carnivores of course i know the example of the tigers in india but in general you know if you look at africa north america it's uh, there's not a lot uh, you know it's not comparable to what's happening in europe so that's really good, positive news and there's difficult di- different uh, ideas about how they impact the landscape and you know there's being studies uh, are being done on it of course many people know the story about the wolves in Yellowstones and Yellowstone and how they change rivers those who are actively reintroduced and huh, Yellowstone in Europe we have natural expansion the only species that are being reintroduced in some locations are Eurasian lynx and Iberian lynx. all the other species are uh, are not reintroduced and there was a former reintroduction of brown bears in the Pyrenees but that's basically it all of it, Uh, is natural expansion. And um, we know, apart from predation, that there's other roles that these carnivores play, large carnivores play in nature. For instance, uh, the impact on the the behavior of their prey, like wolves feeding on red deer, uh, you know, so big herds of red deer, uh, just, you know, grazing calmly in an open place or in the forest. That has changed, you know, they split up in smaller groups, they're much more skittish, they have less reproduction because a lot of energy goes into the, you know, the running away for wolves. And and so there is all these uh, other uh, effects that we are just starting to see, really, in uh, particular of, of, the, of, of, of the wolf. I think that's the most impactful species. But of course, the others also have an impact in terms of um, uh, predation. Uh, But also this what we call ecology of fear type of behavior that changes the the way landscapes are being grazed. So apart from the fact that you have these grazers that have an impact, if you also have on top of that carnivores that influence the behavior of those grazers, of course, you can imagine this brings another dimension to the to the natural process that you see as a result of that. So um, uh, the impact is there, definitely. But it's hard to sort of give a simple one-liner on what that impact is. But the types of impact are clear and to what extent it really changes landscapes. That, of course, is something that takes a lot of time. And there are studies ongoing to, uh, to look at this. And uh, Some people say in human-dominated landscapes like Europe, you don't see so much effect. Others doubt that again. So, yeah, I think future research will, uh, will help us to, uh, to learn more.
0: So why have the mega carnivores of Europe been recovering so successfully?
1: The main reason why large carnivores are recovering successfully is legal protection. So we we have the habitats and birds are active. So it's not only the large carnivores, but also you see a lot of, you know, big bird species and predator birds, raptors, and they're also increasing. In fact, you know, we did a study um, now two times in 2013 and 2022 with the Zoological Society of London and BirdLife, and we looked at the success factors of 100 species. We finally ended up with 50 because we didn't have data sufficiently for all of them. But for 50 species, we described and analysed the reasons for the comeback. So legal protection through the habitats and Birth Directive is number one, because that affects, of course, the protection protection status at national level as well, because EU member states have to comply with EU laws. Um, The other one is... Very much uh, dedicated species conservation work, reintroductions, habitat protection, and so on. And there's another important factor: that's the hunting uh, policy. Uh, so some species, at some point in some countries, were forbidden to to be hunted, and that allowed their recovery. And I'm talking about, for instance, uh, Arctic geese species, like the barnacle geese. You know, huge increase. Of barnacle geese that winter in Europe because the, they were not allowed to be hunted anymore. Um, so there's different reasons, but the common uh, the common reason is really uh, those you know dedicated uh, conservation work, uh, legal protection, and also habitat restoration in a number of ways. And some species were nearly at the brink of extinction, and the main two ones are the Iberian lynx, which at some point. In the early 2000s, had only like 25 breeding females left in Spain. Now there's over 2,000 again, huge efforts. So the Arbira is recovering. And the other very famous species that maybe not many people know about is the European bison, which were down to 52 only in zoos. So it got extinct into the wild. And uh, through uh, efforts of nearly 100 years now in Europe, starting in Poland in 1927, I think it was, uh, breeding in captivity and releasing in places uh, in the landscape again, and now we are up to I think around eight thousand European bison. Not only not, not all roaming free, but um, uh, a huge success, I would say, for this uh, largest uh, herbivore, uh, largest mammal that we have in Europe.
0: What have been the implications of rewilding predators on local communities in terms of uh, human wildlife conflict and other? Social
1: impacts. Yeah. yeah, you can imagine that um, in landscapes or areas or regions where people used to live with these uh, large carnivores in particular, they had their ways, you know, they had uh, shepherd dogs, they knew they get, they ha- you have to bring the sheep at night into a corral. Uh, and they also were used to the fact that they would lose certain percentage of their animals every year because of uh, predation by wolves in particular. Uh, so that was like common sense common practice more or less but you can imagine if countries that didn't have wolves for 200 years or longer and the species is now sort of entering their country and i speak about my home country the netherlands where we now have i think around 30 35 wolves in our small country you know it takes a lot of effort to uh, get used again to live you know side by side with this animal and um, and find ways to coexist so i would say Coexistence, you know, is is a key uh, challenge and maybe also opportunity uh, for Europe and Europeans to um, to have their uh, iconic wildlife back in their backyard, if you like. And uh, that is not only with the large carnivores; that it's the same with beavers, with deer, with eagles. You know, you name it—vultures, all of these species. Because we're talking about predators, scavengers, herbivores, they all have an impact and. You know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, or for a long time, people just wanted to get rid of these animals because they were a nuisance. But I think, and I also hope, that we, you know, civilized a little, little bit, and that that we are not going back to those days that we just want to eradicate and poison and shoot and poach uh, these beautiful animals, but that we try and find a way to live in coexistence. And this is not only about reducing human wildlife conflicts; it's also about having benefits from the presence of these animals. So. Things like wildlife photography, wildlife tourism are on the rise in Europe. And so that brings a a business case for many rural areas. If you have these animals, it's not just trying to live next to them and have as less problems as possible. It's actually more positive. You know, how can you build a a local economy based on wildlife, wildlife watching? As we know from other parts of the world, you know, Europe has maybe 18,000 brown bears. You don't need to go to the to North America or Canada to see brown bears. You can see them in Europe. And there's already places in Europe where people are really benefiting and where businesses are um, built, uh, local economies around iconic wildlife species. So um, is this is something we have to work on. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight. And there will always be people who don't like it. But I think that uh, looking at the net result of Wildlife Come Back in Europe, which is is happening as we speak, Many species are returning, expanding their range. It's a positive story, which basically tells us that, again, as I started in the beginning, uh, if you allow nature to bounce back, it will. And wildlife is, depending on the species, of course, is a great example of that. The wildlife comeback in Europe that we see happening over the last 30, 40 years.
0: So I know the UK is not a part of the EU anymore, but There's been a lot of controversy with rewilding predators in in the the United Kingdom. A lot about controversy about what? uh, The controversy about uh, rewilding predators to the UK, like wolves and lynx. So do you think that it is possible to see wolves and lynx return uh, to the UK in the foreseeable future? Well, one of
1: the exceptions of wildlife comeback is the United Kingdom because it's a big island, right? There is no land bridge between mainland Europe and the UK. If there would have been, I'm sure there were already wolves and other species would have come back to the UK. So anything uh, in terms of wildlife come back it has to be brought there actively. And there have been discussions about various various species. Uh, wolves is one of them. Lynx is one of them. Bison, and actually, the first reintroduction of bison has happened. I think lynx will also happen at some point. Wolf is a different story. Uh, the lynx discussions and feasibility studies and research and knowledge is actually growing fast. And we hope that within, you know, a few years time, there will be links reintroductions happening in the UK. And of course, you know, like in the Netherlands or Denmark or Belgium, where, where species are coming back for the UK, it's the same challenge. You know, how can you find ways to not only coexist with these animals, but also benefit from them? And the lynx is actually a very shy animal. I haven't seen the lings, I have to admit, in my entire life working so much in Europe. Um, it's very hard to see them leave alone, you know, to see their impact. They hunt on roe deer, small prey. Um, very unlikely they take a sheep. And if if it would be one, it would be very rare. And we know that from many places across Europe. So um the lynx is actually fairly easy spe- easy species to bring back, also to the UK. It's very much again the paradigm paradigm shift in thinking and you know the feeling of losing control the feeling of uh, trying to get rid of animals that could or might become a nuisance or and maybe not are Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done Um, but um, yeah i think wolves will be a difficult one for the uk Uh, let's focus on the links first wildcat is happening now reintroductions and breedings well that's a that's a small predator Um, and live with the other ones that are already there like otters and beavers and there's lots of challenges in the UK to even coexist with the more ordinary species. Um, yeah, so um, I think that's the the view I can give you from mainland Europe on the UK.
0: <laughs> you spoke a lot about how how rewilding can support local economies. So what is rewilding Europe doing to in, integrate rewilding into the economy?
1: In all of our landscapes, you know, we work on wilder nature. And that is around rewilding land, um, bringing back species, reflooding, uh, rewetting, uh, dam removal, you name it, all these uh, natural de- regeneration, all, all these things that sort of the natural processes and, and creating wilder nature. That's one big piece of work. The other piece of work is about people because rewilding is 90% about people and 10% about nature, because if you, as I said, and as I explained, if you allow nature to bounce back, at will. So that's the easy part, I would say. So it's a psychology and, and working with the people in the region that is taking most of our efforts. And it is a core element. So benefits for people is a core element, nature for people is a core element of Rewind Europe's work. And we do this in a number of ways. Um, on the more economic side, we're looking at how can we create a landscape business plans that brings together all. All the businesses and business ideas to create this new nature-based economy connected to rewilding wild nature and and you know the natural assets that such landscapes have. So we provide technical expertise, help entrepreneurs with business plans, provide finance through loans. Uh, we help with sales and so that they don't work in isolation. Together, product for the region, which uh, in turn provides incentives for people to appreciate nature and wildlife around them. That's the benefit side, of course, that we're looking for. So that's more, so, and that will bring jobs, income, visitors uh, around nature. So this is something that uh, is is key here. But there's also other sectors apart from tourism that we can work with and where we could develop business models. For instance, on rewilding forests, we are pioneering new business models around transforming plantations into more natural forests. Which you know could be very useful in areas where there's a lot of plantations, which uh, are, um, are are easy to to burn, like in Portugal, eucalyptus and pine tree plantations. How can we transform them into natural oak forests that you know should be there, in fact? Um, so, and then there's private estates. There is business models around wildlife management that we are exploring. So there's a lot of economic opportunity connected to rewilding then there is also the what we call the wider benefits those are the benefits for instance yes you know this is about well-being this is also about pride and identity of of regions and landscapes that were suffering from land abandonment economic downturn you know young people leaving uh, public facilities being closed like uh, the library shops uh, transport you name it and uh, what we see now uh, starting in some of our landscape is that Young people that leave a region where they were born and grew up to go and study in a big city, a capital of the country can turn back because they still might have a house of their parents or a bit of land, but they don't come back as a farmer. They come back, you know, educated, uh, you know, maybe as an MBA or, or 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 being able to do an online business. If you have good internet connection, you can actually work quite nicely from the countryside and build a the life there and grow your own vegetables. and so. There's a lot happening on the on that side as well. Uh, so the people's component is extremely important because we want these to become living landscapes where where there's a thriving economy, but not the old school thinking, but a new uh, call it regenerative economy that uh, nature that is nature based and which uh, makes people appreciate the values that are there instead of. Uh, intensifying land use um, again in these marginal places where there is actually that huge opportunity of um, building more natural landscapes, developing more natural landscapes and and climate resilience instead of intensive monocultures of crops or trees. So that's the, um, the main sort of people uh, component, both economic and
0: let's um, say the more soft benefits it can bring. So, could you also talk about
1: the uh, Rewilding Europe Capital Project? So, one of the um, one of the opportunities, as I said, that we have is to provide uh, loans to uh, entrepreneurs. So, we have support from a number of donors, but also including the European Investment Bank, where we provide uh, loans for those enterprises that uh, have um, a rewilding connection. Uh, so it could be something like uh, accommodation or, or a tourism guide, nature tourism guide operation, or or, or anything else. So uh, so that loan facility is helping those local entrepreneurs that can often uh, it's hard for them to to access uh, finance, and we provide uh, attractive sort of uh, soft loans for them to start their business. But it's a repayable uh, loan, so they. They have to pay back the loan, and um, a part of the money that uh, they uh, they uh, a part of the money that they benefit from will uh, you know will also go to the Rewilding Initiative. So we make a direct connection between the enterprise and the Rewilding happening through a Rewilding Levy. Uh, so that's basically our loan facility. There is now six and a half million in this facility, and we have. Uh, over 30 loans are uh, already provided, some of them already are paid back, others are still running, and there's new new ones coming. So, um, so this is an interesting way of uh, supporting local business.
0: So, now moving towards Rewilding Europe as a whole. So, what are some of the most exciting projects upcoming as a part of Rewilding Europe?
1: So, what we've done, we are now exist 12 years. And when we were 10 years, we sort of looked back and also forward and we we asked ourselves the question, where would we like to be by 2030? And um, so we developed a new strategy uh, for 2030. And that's what we are now, uh, deep, you know, that's what we're now working on. Uh, everyone uh, in, in the central team, which is based here in the Netherlands, uh, largely, and also the 10 landscape teams. Um, so there's actually two big. Components of our work. One is demonstration of how rewilding works, and the benefits it brings. So that's what we do in our landscapes with all our landscape teams, and we now have ten landscapes, and that will grow to fifteen. And number eleven is in the pipeline; would will be in France if everything goes well. But in the other additional landscapes, we also want to see if we can start marine and coastal rewilding, uh, sea wilding, uh, if you like. Um, so that will be exciting new initiative so we, we want to start going into the marine component here uh, that's uh, i think very exciting we've just started a new initiative called european wildlife um, comeback Faci- uh, fund which is a dedicated fund to uh to push and increase reintroductions in a very practical way across europe so anyone can apply and we already um supported by now I think around 12 or 13 different reintroductions ranging from uh, uh, big animals to very small animals <laughs> um, insects even so uh, really to push the wildlife come back more even more. So that's really exciting and um, and what is so that's the demonstration role and then we have the upscaling role because these landscapes are meant to be and are already. Inspirational examples of what can happen at a much larger scale. So, the upscaling component is something we are working on now much more than we did in the first 10 years. So, we have an upscaling team and we really want to see how we can uh, make others adopt and work with rewilding. And we have a number of different ways for that. We have the European Rewilding Network, where any rewilding initiative can become a member and exchange experience. Now we have 90 members across 28 European countries and that will grow. Uh, So that's exciting. We just started European Young Rewilders, uh, an initiative that we incubated already two years ago, but now with more dedicated staff and power, uh, really mobilizing and bringing together young professionals, young people in Europe that, that like to embrace rewilding, which is also very exciting. And maybe as a last example of what we have just started or are starting now is a company called Rewilding Climate Solutions, where we want to see how rewilding can become a commercially interesting activity. Um, and this is mainly done through uh, carbon credit financing. And there's a few other uh, things and ideas that we're working on, but uh, these three are the European Wildlife Connect Fund, the European Young Rewilders, and Rewilding Climate Solutions. I think are three very exciting. Uh, new initiatives within rewilding europe that are really meant to upscale our work across europe and outside and beyond our own landscapes
0: so ever since the inception of rewilding europe what have been some of your biggest challenges of course if
1: you start a new initiative like this um although we were all very experienced the people that, that that were the founders it's a, you never know where this is going to go, of course. And when we started, we had this big vision and this big idea. And I think that's part of our success is that people felt attracted to the big idea. But of course, you also make a promise. And, and if people support you with their funding, of course, it gives you a big responsibility to make it happen. And you don't know if that is going to succeed. But uh, I think, you know, we have been growing very strong and, um uh, and I think yeah, we are on a on a very nice path to uh, become uh, uh, bigger, not in terms of organization, but in terms of uh, rewilding happening out there. Um, and of course, you have to overcome lots of challenges because it's a new way of thinking. I already mentioned that before. The fundraising, you know, finding the money uh, to make uh, make it possible what you want to do, that is going better and better. Uh, there's a lot of interest from uh, private sector, from corporates, from private foundations, uh, individuals that want to support our work. Also, because we're able to now show results and and start start of impact. So that is something that people really look for. You know, the talking is enough. We need to act. I think that's the blah, blah, blah remark that Greta Thunberg once made. We are typically an organization that uh, wants to do things on the ground um, so we're very much um, a practitioner of this idea of rewilding, and of course, being a practitioner brings challenges because you know not everyone is 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 ready for it or uh, does understand it. So there's a lot of work to be done, and is being done to overcome the, overcome those challenges. Uh, we talked already about the policy side. I think if we would have more enabling policy environment terms of legislation for rewilding that would tremendously help, maybe not so much anymore at the European level or EU level, but at the country level, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, Yeah. And I I think those are some of our main, main challenges. So change of attitude, how we see nature, making sure sufficient financial means make our work possible. Uh, a, A policy environment that supports rewilding and maybe Another one which is connected to what I earlier explained about rewilding climate solutions. I really think that if we want to scale up rewilding, the private sector has to come in big time because only philanthropy and public funding will not make the difference ultimately. We need it all. We're very much supporting a blended finance sort of uh, system. But the private sector, um, driven by their shareholders or by ESG policy or becoming nature positive, can do a whole lot and uh, we see that interest in the corporate sector really increasing a lot and we are uh, working with a number of new partners, big corporates that um, that I want to uh, join our um, our in- initiative. So that, that's positive.
0: And how can individuals join the rewilding movement?
1: As an individual there is a lot of things you can do and that's uh, apart from following us, um, you know, uh, make a donation. Uh, I think promoting rewilding through through sharing articles and through social media. Uh, The beauty of rewilding is you can rewild your own garden. You can rewild your city park. So you can become active yourself in rewilding and start rewilding initiatives. Of course, you can also visit our landscapes. If people would like to go on holiday, they are very welcome to book uh, their holidays to our areas. We have rewilding Europe travel, um, our um, main tourism partner that offers interesting itineraries where you can see and learn about these rewilding landscapes. And if people who are already practicing rewilding, they can join the rewilding Europe network. So European rewilding network. So um, there's lots of things you can do. And I think that's what like, that's what people like a lot. Um, It's very actionable and um uh yeah from, as i said from your own backyard to to being part of something bigger or uh you know share share the news and and follow us or make a, a contribution w- with a donation or become a partner you know companies organizations uh private individuals can become a partner and and join us and and support us maybe more substantially if they are able to and willing
0: and um- My final question for you is that across your conservation career, what has been your largest, uh, what has been your biggest learning?
1: The biggest learning in my conservation career? Yep. Hmm. Well, the, the biggest learning in my conservation career has to do with what I call moving from this anxiety narrative to what we call an empowerment narrative. And the anxiety narrative is that Nature is um, weak. We have to help it. It depends on us, and if we don't save it today, it will disappear tomorrow. So there is this marketing drive of sense of urgency and and collecting money to uh, uh, hold the decline. Right? That is that you see a lot, and I I call it the anxiety narrative. All the you know the the stories that that you get every day about how bad things are going. And I think people get tired of it and maybe people start to ignore it because you can hardly imagine and process some of that negative news. I think the biggest learning is that if you turn that into um, what I call an empowerment narrative, where you communicate positive messages, that you communicate hope and perspective and also action that you can be part of, that is much more energizing for people You know, people like to be part of a winning team, not a losing team, I I always say. And, um, you know, working with nature as an ally is hugely energizing and positive. If you see the success of a species returning or you see a beautiful meadow, you know, flowering again, or if you see a river that was just um, uh, where the dams were just removed, you see it flowing free again. This is incredible. And, And I think that's what people like about rewilding. It's very... Very much a, a story of hope, posit- and and there is a perspective of of being able to do something, and, and that transition from, you know, in my early career, uh, uh, the first two decades, if you like, uh, to now is is I think the biggest learning, or maybe it's not a learning; it's more what happened to me, and and I realized really that um, following this more positive, empowering narrative mobilizes I think in the end much more people than uh, the doom and gloom stories that, that we hear every day so well, maybe that's what I could give you as the my best
0: example here so yeah that's a positive way to end the interview thank you so much for your time it was a pleasure speaking to you yeah I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Think Wildlife podcast if you did don't forget to subscribe and share